My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together together, together together, as always. Um, I can safely say that after one week with Jenny Lin on her sabbatical, the staff has survived. So keep praying for us. We still got life. Thank you, Noah. We got 14 weeks to go. Who's counting? But uh, pray that we continue to survive uh, Jenny Lin's absence and uh, glad that at least we have people that can step in and, and serve the church because I know she does a lot for us. But um, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. And so grab one of those. We'd love for you to use that. And if you don't have a Bible and you're on a faith journey, please feel free to take that with you. And we'd love to uh, walk with you through the questions that you might have about Jesus and about the Christian faith that we believe in. Um, just to catch us up to speed and where we are in 1 Samuel, as we read chapter 13, remember this. The people of God wanted a king, a human king. And in their desire for a king, God relents. But in their ask for this king, it was a rejection against God. Why? Because he has always been their faithful king. But God still relents and gives them this king, and their first king is Saul. And what does Saul do? He actually, in his first battle, in his first job, actually beats the Ammonites. Remember that? Uh, they had King Nahash, and he was this ruthless king who gouged out the right eye of every single person that they would basically defeat. But remember, after this defeat that God gave them, what happens? They have this beautiful covenant renewal service that we saw last week. Pastor John preached, and we saw how they re were reminded of God's faithfulness in their past, that they would cry out to God, and God would listen. They would repent. They would ask for forgiveness, and God would grant forgiveness, and God would give them their grace. And it was this beautiful service where we, as readers and listeners, are reminded of God's grace, that when we cry out to him, he listens, and he gives us his mercy and his grace, and he always, always delivers for his people. Now it's on that, on that note where we left off, and we come to another battle. It was the Ammonites on the east of the Jordan. Now they have to deal with the Philistines who are on their west. And the Philistines have always been their arch nemesis, right? It's like the Luke Skywalker to their Darth Vader. They have always been this ruthless enemy that they've always had to deal with. And now Saul has the Philistines to deal with. And that's what we're going to see. And as we read this, it's a long passage, but I want you to ask yourself, how are the people of God helpless? We're gonna, it's, the title is called Helpless. In what ways are the people of God helpless as the Philistines come to attack? So read along with me, starting in verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter together. Saul, was, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. 
And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. That's a lot. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days. This is Saul the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, what I, When I saw that people were scattering from me, and that you didn't come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. Verse 16. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company toward, turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Basically what it's saying is Philistines have surrounded Israel, northwest and the southeast. Verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that though the flower fades and the grass withers, Lord, your word stands forever. And so, Lord, I pray that this word would reign in our hearts this morning so that you might speak to us and transform us and make us more like you. 
We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was told once that there is no greater fear than to be caught in the middle of the ocean. You have absolutely nowhere to go, no refuge to hide. You are completely vulnerable to the waves and to the winds that basically crash upon you. Now, this actually happened to this family, the Kaufmans, Eric and Charlotte Kaufman, and their two young daughters, a three-year-old girl and a one-year-old girl. And what happened was that this family had basically made their boat, their sailboat, their home their entire lives. This was where they made their memories. This is where they lived on the ocean. And their desire this time was to be able to go through the Pacific Islands all the way down to New Zealand where they would spend maybe the next three or four years and then make a decision of where they would go next. This was their life. And so as they set sail to go towards New Zealand from America, they caught themselves in what was this crazy, crazy storm and was known as a squall. 2,000 miles in the ocean of the Pacific, they were caught in this nasty squall. And what happened was this thing called they were broached. And if any of you love boating or sailing, broaching basically means when this wave comes over your boat, slams your boat, almost like when your car would get T-boned, you hear this loud smash and your boat goes literally sideways, all the way sideways to hit the ocean and then after a few seconds, come back up. Now, broaching actually happens quite often if you go sailing in the middle of the ocean. But the problem for them this time was that when they were broached, the hull of their boat cracked. And when it cracked, their boat began to flood. About 60 to 70 gallons of water every day. Now, that's not a lot but it was enough that they knew that their boat was slowly beginning to sink over time. 2,000 miles in the middle of the ocean, and now they are stuck. But to make matters worse, their one-year-old daughter came down with a sickness where she had a fever. She began, to, she began to get very lethargic, which is worrisome. But lastly, she started getting rashes all over her body. She's, they they took antibiotics. None of it was working. And she was slowly getting worse and worse. Now, you would think you could call for help. But the problem was, to make matters even worse, their radio frequency got killed because of the water. And secondly, their satellite phone died on them because of some SIM issues. Long story short, I won't go into that. This family, the Kaufmans, were utterly and completely helpless. 2,000 miles in the middle of the ocean with no help at all. This is the Israelites. They're not in the middle of the ocean. They're on their land, Israel, but they are surrounded by the Philistines. 36,000 soldiers well, is described as sand on a seashore versus 3,000 men ready to fight. To make matters worse, they had no metal, right? The Philistines basically monopolized the metal so that they had no swords or no spears. They were helpless. And then to make matters even worse, as I described, they were surrounded from the north to the west to the southeast. They had nowhere to go. This is the plight of Israel. And I think for 
many of us, if not all of us, us as well. We experience helplessness many times in our lives. It could be circumstances outside of us. It could be family. It could be children. It could be your parents. It could be your work. It could be something internal where you feel helpless and there is so much anxiety in your life right now where you feel utterly like the Kaufmans and like Israel at this moment. What do we do? Now here as we look at the story, the question isn't what we do. What I want us to examine is that when we feel utterly and completely helpless, it actually reveals what's going on in our hearts. And that's what we actually see here in this story. We actually are... are are able to see what's going on in King Saul's heart and Israel's as well when we feel helpless. And that's what I want to do briefly here. Three things that we're going to see that when we are helpless, it reveals what's going on in our hearts. So first, let's look at the first thing that we see here. The thing that is revealed when we are helpless is that it reveals our fears, right? It reveals our fears. Now look what's happened here. Now, we're introduced to this man named Jonathan. We don't know who he is, but later on in this chapter, we find out who. It's Saul's son. So Jonathan is at an age where he can fight, and he's given 1,000 of their best men to fight. Saul takes 2,000 men. And for whatever reason, we don't know why, but Jonathan decides to attack the garrison of the Philistines, and in this skirmish, they win. And in their winning, though, guess what happens? He disrupts and basically disrupts the hornet's nest. He has awakened the hornet's nest, and now the Philistines want to basically bring on all hell to Israel. 36,000 soldiers against their puny little 3,000 men. And Israel is absolutely terrified, right? Verse 6, the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble. And what did they do? They hide themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, and in cisterns. And what do some of the other people do? They actually flee out of Israel and become exiles. They're basically saying we are dead. They're burying themselves and they're exiling themselves. They are afraid. Now, on one hand, we can understand why they would be afraid. But on the other hand, should they have been afraid? I would argue no. Why? Because last week in chapter 12, they heard over and over and over again of God's faithfulness. God delivering them. That when you cry out to me, I have delivered you every single time. Egypt. The Ammonites, the Philistines, whoever it is, I have delivered you. Do not be afraid. And here they are afraid. And I think one of the things that you realize when we are an afraid people, a fearful people, we become forgetful people. We forget who God is. We forget about God's character. We forget about how wonderful and how big and powerful our God is. And that's exactly what the Israelites do. They forget in their helplessness and in their fear. They forget about how big and how strong and how faithful and how gracious their God is. And instead, they flee. They hide. But it's not just the Israelites. We see Saul their king, their representative, the one who stands for them. What does he do? 
He is so afraid. And what is he afraid of? Not the Philistines. He's afraid of something more internal. And he's afraid of losing control. He's afraid of losing his kingdom. He's afraid of losing his power. And that is what he is afraid of. He looks at the entire situation and he knows that he could lose everybody. People are scattering in verse 8 it says. His people are scattering. He's losing his people. And the only way he could get control back is by doing something. I think this hearkens us to this idea that fear truly affects everybody. From the lonely soldier who's buried in a cistern to the king of Israel, every single person experiences fear. Do you know do not fear in Scripture is the most repeated command in all of the, of the Bible. Why? Because we are a fearful people. We are a forgetful people of who our God is. It could be family. It could be our city right now. Our world and the things that John has even prayed for this morning. Politics. Pandemics. Even as we think about, as I spoke to RUF a couple weeks ago, it could be the anxiety and fear of not feeling validated and trying to find your own identity through social media and whatever it might be. We are an afraid people And whether it's control or death, whatever it is, we long for something to rescue us because we are helpless. I think about my own story. And I'm afraid of letting people down. I'm afraid of getting things wrong. I'm afraid of misspeaking when I preach. I'm afraid of being misunderstood. These are the things that I am afraid of. What are you afraid of this morning? When you are helpless, fear strikes at the core of who we are. And what are the things that you are afraid of? What makes you anxious? What are you afraid of losing control? In our helplessness, it reveals our own fears and the things that we are losing control of but that's not it you see though fear should point us to god and and remind us of his faithfulness the other thing that our helplessness does it reveals our foolishness it reveals our foolishness now saul is scared out of his mind because he's about to lose control of everything his kingdom his power his people what does he do read verse 10 (coughs) he waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, and behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. This was an egregious sin. Earlier in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, when we preached that about a month ago, there was a little detail that Samuel the prophet tells Saul. And this was it. Go down before me to Gilgal. So now Saul's doing that. And behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. This was what Samuel was supposed to do, to to offer sacrifices. And Samuel, as the prophet, was to tell Saul, the king, what he should do with the Philistines. And why this is important is because Saul is God's appointed prophet. What, Saul, what Samuel says is what God says. 
His words are the very word of God. Not like me, but like a man who is an anointed prophet of God. His words had weight because they were God's words alone. And what Saul does is he disregards God's word. And what does Samuel say in verse 13? Read verse 13. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which with, with which he commanded you. You see, he was supposed to wait seven full days. And because of his fear and seeing the circumstances around him, losing control, he dis disregards God's word to him to wait seven full days and he can no longer be patient. And he offers the burnt offerings himself. And that is what a fool is. We all do stupid things. But when scripture uses fool, it is someone who disobeys, disregards, and does not listen to God's word. When we do not heed God's words, we are a fool. And here Saul was a fool and reveals so much of our own hearts. When we are helpless, what do we do? When we are helpless, we find our own strength. We find our own, we depend on our own ingenuity. We depend on our own smarts. We depend on our own experiences. And we go, whether God's word is faithful to what I'm going to do or not, I'm going to do it because this is what is best for me. And that's what Saul does. One scholar said, this, said it this way. For Saul, sacrificial ritual, which he does, was essential. But God's word was dispensable. Yahweh's words were unnecessary in certain situations. And I think we're exactly the same. When we are helpless, we disregard God's word. It is dispensable. But the things that I will do are absolutely essential. And I think for Saul, this is his foolishness. And ours as well. How do you respond when you are helpless? Do you go to God's word? Do you cry out to him? Or do you find your strength, your help in your own ways that goes against God's word? I don't know what that might be for you. But we are all tempted to go our own ways when we find ourselves in crisis. You have done foolishly. When we are to actually go to God's word and wait patiently and in patience, God's grace always, always abounds. So we see here in our helplessness, or at least in Saul's helplessness, it reveals his fears, it reveals his foolishness. But lastly, what we see here is it, it reveals his defiance. His defiance. Now we have to look at what Saul, how Saul answers Samuel, when Samuel asks him, what have you done? Now, before I read this, think about how he should have responded. How should have Saul responded when Samuel said, what, what have you done? Well, he had just witnessed and participated in that covenant renewal service, right? And what was it all about? It was all about repentance. It was all about forgiveness. It was all about God's mercy. It was being able to cry out to God and say, I have sinned. I have done these things against you, God. And what do they experience? Forgiveness and grace and mercy. 
So when Samuel asks him in verse 13, what have you done? Or in verse 11, what have you done? Samuel should have immediately repented and said, I have sinned against God. But does he? Let's read verse 11. And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So what? I forced myself like I had no other choice and offered the burnt offering myself. You know what he's doing? He's playing the blame game. First, he, he blames others. He says, look at all my army. They're scattering, so I have to do it. And you, Samuel, it's your fault. You, and he actually emphasizes it twice. It's a, a W. It's you, you, Samuel, did not come at the appointed time. So he's blaming others. Then he also blames the circumstances. Look at the Philistines. They have surrounded us. So I had no choice. I was forced to do something that God did not tell me to do. And then third, he blames God. He says, I have not sought the favor of God. And so I have to do this because I need to earn God's favor. Don't we do that? When we find ourselves helpless and afraid and we act foolishly, we don't own it. We blame other people and ultimately we blame God for the things that we have done. What does it look like to repent? And I think what's more egregious than his sin in doing the sacrifice and disobeying God's word was that he actually wasn't willing to repent and own his sin. That's the more egregious thing. And what we have to learn from Saul isn't, oh, don't sin, but what does it look like to repent when we fail? Every Sunday we come together and we sing songs of God's grace and His forgiveness. We come to the table and we see a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness for us. We hear scripture and we confess our sin and we hear the pardon of assurance that God has forgiven us. And then what do we do as soon as we leave? We don't repent and receive God's mercy and grace. We defend ourselves. We make excuses. And we show our defiance against God rather than show our humility, and humble ourselves to be able to say, I have done wrong here. And this is what does Saul in. This is what does his kingdom in. Right? Remember, he's not just any human being. He's not just any king. He is the second in command under God. He is the vice king to God. He didn't just break any commandment. This wasn't just disobedience. He was defiant. His heart was opposed to the authority of God. You'll see over and over again in chapter 14 and 15 and 16 how defiant he was against God. And we see that here in his unrepentance. He was consumed with his own agenda his own kingdom, rather than the kingdom of God. So what did God have to do? God had to cut himself off from Saul. You see, instead of admitting failure, he blames everyone but himself. Unrepentance was his fatal flaw, his fatal sin. And everything seems absolutely hopeless here. I ended Chapter 13, with absolutely what seems like such dark times. They have nothing. They have no weapons. 
They are completely outmanned. It looks like the game is over for Israel's people because their representative, King Saul, has failed. What's our hope? Remember the story of the Kaufmans? 2,000 miles in the ocean. No hope. Their daughter is at worst dying. Their radio is dead. Their satellite phone is not working. And their boat is flooding. <laughs> well, if you know anything about boats, there was one thing that could save them. And both the husband and, sp and wife kept looking at it. And it took them about 10 minutes to realize they needed to do it. And it was this thing called an EPIRB. Stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. And once you turn that on or light it up, it immediately sends this frequency out to the Coast Guard or whoever to send out for help because that is the last thing you ever do. And you don't get any feedback, but it sends a signal and then it exactly tells you where your coordinates are. And within hours, if not by a day, you will see someone come and rescue you. But the reason they hesitated was because it was costly. They don't come here to rescue your boat. Remember, this was their home. And in lighting up that EPIRB, they knew that though they would be rescued, they were losing their home and it was going to be costly. This was their glimmer of hope. And for Israel, there is a glimmer of hope in the midst of this judgment against Israel and Saul. I don't know if you saw it. It was in verse 14. Read along with me. In the midst of judgment, there is a glimmer of hope for God's people. But now your kingdom shall not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. That is their hope. And that is our hope. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Though Saul fails and is only concerned about his own heart and his own kingdom and his own power, God was establishing a new kingdom and a new king named David. David takes his stead and represents a man after God's own heart. But guess what? Does he fail? Oh yeah, he does. As we will see in January, he is a murderer, he is an adulterer, he is a liar, but he is a man who is not defiant. He is a man of repentance, a man of humility, but he is still not enough. It doesn't take a man who is after his own heart. It doesn't take a man who, who is after God's own heart. What we all need is a man who is God's heart incarnate and that comes through David's line as we follow it through the Gospels in the New Testament. And it is through Jesus Christ. And what the Gospel shows us is that there is a kingdom of God who has arrived through King Jesus, the true representative. And when you look at the New Testament and the Gospels, 80%, 90% is of Jesus' life. And only 10%, 20% is of his death and of his resurrection. Why? Because his life is just as important as his death and his resurrection. It was because when Jesus felt helpless, he did not fear. 
When Jesus was helpless, he, it did not reveal a foolish heart. When Jesus was helpless, it did not reveal a defiant heart, but rather he was a man who clinged to his father God. It was a man who was planted by a streams of water who meditated on God's word day and night. It was, a, God, it was a, a man after God's own heart who lived the perfect life, who did not have to say, I forg- or forgive me, but rather in his perfection and in his perfect life, he said, forgive them for they do not know, as they were killing him and slaughtering him on the altar. This was a God, a man after God's own heart, who in his helplessness cried out to God, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and said, not my will, but your will be done. That's hard. And we fail, but Jesus doesn't. And that is why we come to him, and that is why we need someone who is God incarnate in the flesh, who represents God's heart himself. There was a day that I wasn't proud of, It was when my wife and I thought we were going to have a fourth kid. And in my fear, in my foolishness, and in my defiance, as I quickly got into my car to drive to the nearest Walgreens at like one in the morning, I was angry. I mean, you talk about the low, maybe one of the lowest moments in my life. I was angry. I was fearful. I did not want a fourth kid. I was so angry at the Lord as I drove to pick up that pregnancy kit. And those are the times where I realize I need a Savior who is not foolish, who is not defiant, who is not fearful, but is absolutely dependent on the Lord and His Word. That's why as we come to the table, this isn't just a memory or something to remind ourselves, but it is our grace and our strength that when we are helpless, we have a God who has provided a way for us. So as we come to the table, be strengthened, brothers and sisters. Know that when we fail, and we always fail, we have a God who hasn't. And he, grace, he, he gives us the grace and the mercy and the love that we need every moment of every day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Jesus, Lord, who has taken our stead in our failures and in our defiance and in our fears and in our foolishness, who took our place, died for us, and rose again so that we might have life, that we might have hope, that we might be able to know, Lord, that though we fail, you do not, and we could put our trust in you. So, Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, strengthen us. Give us the grace we need. Remind us, Lord, to be people who are repentant, humble, to know, Lord, that in our helplessness, Lord, we have one who is our strength. Do that now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.